Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassetchapel.com. All right, this is Matthew 20. Thank you for doing that. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first they, when they came, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a Daenerys. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. It's a declarative statement there. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Amen. Let's let's pray. And let's thank God for his word. Father, these are your words from your son in Matthew's gospel. And so what we would pray, please, is is get our eyes off our performance so that we could have the deepest, truest comfort and the deepest, truest, most sustaining assurance in the perfect obedience and performance of our Savior and our friend and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in that, may, may you in love and mercy open our eyes to to heart in, believe this parable, to frame our thinking about you with it, to tell others about it, and place our lives in the life of the one who spoke it, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died for sin, was raised to life for our justification, who will return to judge us in righteousness and is our only hope in life and death. And we pray these things with a grateful heart this morning. To the praise of your glory, we ask it. Amen. So it wasn't so long ago that Christians were called the people of the book. It's a bit tainted now because in all honesty, it depends on how one interprets the book. Still, when people said that, it was shorthand. 
Essentially what they were saying is we believe the Bible is God's book about God's plan and God's son to save his people from sin and death and only through the death of his son Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And God did this because God loved the world, right? He loved the world and he knows the world cannot save itself in its rebellion. So the truth of the Bible is that we're not good people who make mistakes. We're sinful people who need mercy. And the need to accept grace and the need to accept the grace of what we truly are like. So it was Luther who said, be careful not to measure your own holiness by other people's sins. It's a terrible habit. C.S. Lewis, I love this, explaining his pre-conversion days. It just gives you a sense of the context that he was in. My notion about God and the Christian life were exposed as merely duty-driven. And my soul was thrilled at the possibility, remember this is pre-conversion, at the possibility that Christianity might not be like this. So something the Bible then makes really, really clear is we're going to need a God who's extremely gracious. So what we find here then in Matthew's gospel in this parable is that God is really, really gracious you see your Bible, let's open verse 20, or verse 1 of chapter 20. The kingdom of heaven is like. Okay, the Greek word translated literally means same as this. The kingdom of heaven, house rules, is the same as this. So when you read this parable and hear this lesson this morning, you can't say to yourself, well, so God is kind of like this parable? No. He's sort of like this parable? No. Okay. He's like this parable on the weekends and holidays. But on a Monday, after a holiday weekend, he's nothing like this parable. No. This is what God is like. This is God's nature. This is how God is. And we know the danger. The danger is if we try to explain God and his kingdom and Jesus and the gospel and Christianity by our own taste and by our own temperament, there's trouble. And we don't have to do that because we have a Bible. What we have here, and this is beautiful, the one God who gave us this book, penned by men, carried along by the Holy Spirit, the king of the kingdom of heaven, whose Jesus is describing here in these verses, his kingdom is the same as this parable. So it's inescapable. It is inescapable that God is incredibly, extremely, unreasonably gracious. The generosity of God and the grace of God identified in this parable, it's so outstanding that it can be offensive to people. I mean, you put yourself in the story, as we will later on. You you know, the, the, the whole, you know, you made your bed, now lie in it, people. I mean, honestly, this can make a conservative person, we'll say a conservative Christian, pass out. It's so unreasonable. There's so much lavish grace being poured out here. When they should be, they should be startled that, that it's amazing that, that the God who gives breath to men and women, men and women who blaspheme him every day, who sin against him every day, this God gives them breath and he gives them grace. One of my commentators said, this offends our sense of justice. We read this and instinctively our reaction is, that's not fair. We expect rewards that are proportionate 
to the amount of work done. Right? That's how things work in the world. You expect rewards proportionate to the amount of work you do. And if that doesn't take place, what do we say? That's wrong. It's not fair. So when you look at the Bible here, when you look at this parable, you cannot run the, you know, the numbers on the pay scale and say that's good business. If you do cost-benefit analysis here, it just crumbles in this parable. Any works-based righteousness or works-based blessing, it just crumbles here. It just crumbles. You know, the, my wife and I had a little mini-conversation when we were driving. You can have long conversations when you drive at 50 miles an hour, but anyway, <laughs> we, you know, you, you've heard this, we, well, we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. Okay, yeah, but, but I'm under the impression that the definition of stewardship has changed in the church over time, and we make it just about one thing and one thing over, M-O-N-E-Y. Loved ones, there is an unreasonable to the human mind extravagance here. And if you think about it, who is the best steward of everything, especially grace? God is. And how is God portioning it out here? Unreasonable to the human mind, but he's lavishing grace to people. This God, he's large-hearted, he's fully supplied, He's full of compassion. He's full of generosity. He has authority, but he has great empathy. He has great patience. He has great understanding. And when it comes to the most important issues of where a person stands with him in life and in death, you can't miss it. He longs to be gracious. I I, I put in my notes, hyper-gracious, unreasonably gracious. And and that is the essence of this parable that Jesus is telling. If if you like, Jesus tells us here, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. This is not what God is like some of the time. I can't push that enough. This is what God is like all of the time. All of the time. And if you know yourself and you know your sin, you are thanking him right now that he's that way. First point, a parable. Let's just kind of remember what a parable is. So parables were used by Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so every parable carries the weight and the authority of God with it. So it means it has substance to it. It's foundational. You have to build on what this parable teaches. So this is not a one and done deal. We understand this. This is not a one and done deal. This is what God is like. So first, in thinking about parables, the way Jesus used parables was not like the way the scribes and teachers of his day did. They used parables. But when they gave their parables, they simply explained what some Old Testament um, Mosaic law said. So they gave no new information to people when they told their parables. But when Jesus used parables, he did not give remarks on what was, if you would, old news. He gave specific revelation about God, which was good news, or new news. Secondly, you will not find a parable outside of the gospel. I mean, that's pretty interesting to me. So you read through epistles, all of them, you read through Acts, no parables, only in the gospels. Third, you always have to pay attention to the context the parable was set in. 
If you're going to understand it rightly and fully, you're going to have to pay attention to the context. For example, if your Bible's open, just look to the left of chapter 20, which would be chapter 19, and there's a parable, right, of the rich young ruler who found out from Jesus that it was impossible for him to achieve salvation by his own merits and his own works. He asked, remember, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And in that time and in that age, if you were rich and if you were a high position, it automatically meant that you were somehow blessed by God, right? It's the kind of thing that, that frames so much of popular Christianity. You know, how to be the best at everything. He was. He was young, right? He was rich. He had authority. And what a good boy. He wants to have eternal life. But he couldn't stand the answer. And Jesus says to the rich young ruler, give up everything, essentially. Give me all your money. And he can't. And at that point, he learned, was going to learn, that he couldn't save himself. And that's why the disciples, if you look at there, it says, oh, then who can be saved? Because their framework was the same thing. He's young, he's rich, he's high position. Surely he's blessed by God because everybody rich and high position, they, they have the favor and the merit and all that stuff. No. Jesus said, left to that, left to yourself, left to himself, impossible. But beautiful with all with God, all things are possible. And then the parable of the vineyard is going to explain why with God all things are possible. Fourth, this is important, the word parable itself, it, the Greek word is parabaleo. Para is the prefix. You get your words paralegal, parachute, <laughs> paraclete, the, the spirit. Para means something that's brought along, something else. And baleo means to throw or hurl at. So if you break down the word parabolio, it means something that is thrown alongside of something else. Now think about that because it makes complete sense. Jesus tells a story, throws it along what it means to be saved by God or how God is so gracious. And so in that, he's teaching an important truth, an eternal truth. And in order to make it clear, understood, he throws that parable, the story of the vineyard, alongside the truth. God is a gracious God. And so he does it so it'll stick in people's head, stick in their heart as they listen. However, here's the fifth thing, and this is just as important as the fourth thing. It's a mysterious thing, but it makes you think hard about parables, right? Because you think about parables, and you're like, okay, everybody loves a good story. Tell stories about everything you know about Jesus, everything he said, everything he did, turn it into a story. Everybody will understand. Jesus said, not so. This is from Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel. Jesus just finished the parable of the sower and the soils. And this is what the gospel says at the end of his disciples asked him what this parable meant. Okay. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that they will understand. No, listen. So that though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. But to those on the outside, everything he said in parables, this is from Luke's gospel, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So, okay, what is happening here? Because I was thinking the point of the parable is you throw the thing, stick, and everybody gets it. No. 
Parables are not just to make simple, you know, not just to make things simpler to be understood, but they give a deeper understanding to those who truly want to hear. If you're hungry for help, if you're hungry for grace, you hear the parable and you begin to understand the parable. But if you're like the rich young man who walked away from his need of grace, then you don't understand. And look at your Bible, please. Right after this parable, right after everything we just read, there's a little, there's a little family that's you know, hungry for power. The sons of Zebedee and the mother's request. Which is why Jesus says inside the parable, the first will be last and the last will be first. So the point of this parable is say, this is what God is like. And by the way, this is what you are like. You can't merit salvation. You can't merit grace. Status won't get you there. Money won't get you there. Position won't get you there. It can't. Not in God's kingdom. You need a generous, gracious God to rescue you. And then Jesus tells the parable and you have that. And so God says, listen, the first, the less needy will be last. And the last, the incredibly needy, will be first. So you listen to this parable, ask yourself, which one are you? Are you less needy? Are you incredibly needy? Again, remember Luther? Be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins. And so Jesus says, by explaining this, those who have ears to hear will understand and say, yes, that is me. I am last. (laughs) I am last. I laugh because, you know, we always want to be best and first. It's nature. I'm last. Paul, like, it just comes to mind. I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm last. But to those who do not have ears to hear, the the parable is like concealment. They can't understand it. So that's the point. Parables given by Jesus are not just to make things clear, but it exposes the true nature of the person listening at that moment of their listening. So you're listening now, and you take offense by the measure of grace that God has given you, you're like, okay, light's on you. Are you thrilled by this as you listen? You're like, oh, thank you, God. And so what Jesus is saying here, before we get to the second point, is that it's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to hear it and understand it. But it's an altogether different thing and a wonderful thing to hear it, understand it, and embrace it, making it part of the very core of your understanding of God. And so you say to yourself in your morning and evening prayers, this is what God is like. And then you begin to ask for the things that you need. So in this parable, God, again, we'll see, is extravagantly extravagantly gracious, offensively to some in the parable, unreasonably gracious. There's a song, it's an old song, your cheating heart will tell on you when you you hear a parable and the way you react, your cheating heart, if it's bad, it's going to tell on you. But in the parable, if you say, oh God, thank you for being so gracious, not just to me, but to other people as well, that's a Christian. That's number one, parable. Story, to make a point, this is what God is like. Can't change it. This is what he's like. This is who he is at the very core of his being. Number two, then a work day. So you see there, these are house rules. And as you heard the parable, and as you look at your Bible, the pay scale is completely different from the standards of this world. 
which will pass away. You read this parable, and if you're honest, I mean, part of you might think, okay, yes, this is not fair. 12-hour worker and a one-hour worker get the exact same wage at the end of the day. So you read this, and people are like, is Jesus a communist? <laughs> you know? He, no, he's a socialist. That's, is, he, he's, is he Bolshevik? You can look that word up later. I had to. How could this be fair? Now, you need to think, if you ask, how could a person who worked all day in the heat of the day receive the same wage as a person who worked just one hour, how is that fair? How could it be? You only have one word, and the word is grace. And if you're taking notes, I would write this down. Grace is not fair. It can't be fair. If it's fair, then it's earned. Then it can't be grace. It's something else. So you take your mind to this parable's context. Remember rich young ruler? How are we going to be rescued from our sins? How can anyone be saved if the disciples hear what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? And so what this is, and I say this with all the love of my heart, this is a sit-down young man parable. Sit-down young man, all hyped up on your 24-point plan to never sin again, just like the rich young ruler. You sit down and you look me square in the eyes. You need grace every day, every moment of your life. And so this is a salvation parable. This will be what life will be now for the Christian, yes, but all the way past our death and every day, if you would, past death into eternity. And again, God is, if you, did you watch Elf this weekend? I did the movie, you know, ginormously. I love that word. He is ginormously gracious. It's straightforward. Look at your Bible. A landowner is up at the crack of dawn, 6 a.m. That would be the start of a Jewish workday. Verse 3. The day laborers are out. He sees them. He invites them work. He sets the terms. Verse 2, a Daenerys, which was a good, healthy, living wage at that time and in that place. It was a generous wage. Off they go to work. Everyone's happy, right? Everyone's happy. Work offered, wage promised, all agreed. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work they go. But it doesn't end there. The rich landowner goes back into the marketplace. You see in their Bible, it's now 9 a.m., verse 3, about the third hour. He hires some more workers who will be paid, verse 4, what is right. It's now noon. He's back. Now, just do this with me. You know what an old-timey calculator sounds like? You know, when you go, and you hear the, okay. The three of you that know, just play that in your head. Okay, so it's like 6 a.m., 9 a.m., you know, them talking about money being paid out, noon, 3 p.m., he's back, he hires more. Now, right about there, you'll be like, okay, maybe he should stop, you know, he's a, he's a man, he's probably a wealthy man, it doesn't say in the beginning, but he's probably a wealthy man, he ought to be a little bit smarter, you know, I, I love these, I'm like, in, on TikTok and Instagram, there's people who, you know, they do the thing where they, how to get rich, and then they point to all the things and they have little words, each one. I just love it, you know. Get up at 4 a.m., make sure that when the market opens in China, you're awake because that's how the real people do it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's really fun to watch. The landowner is not like that. It's not the point. Because verse 6, at the 11th hour, which would have been 5 p.m., one hour before quitting time, he goes back, he finds people just standing around doing nothing. And essentially says, do you want a job? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, well, you know, we, we want a job. 
okay, for one hour go to work. And I just have to tell you this. I, I know I've told you this before, but this makes me think of my son Jared when he was like, his first summer he was technically able to work. And, you know, he started applying for applications and, you know, his poor dad didn't teach him a thing because he was filling out the applications like, okay, when can you work? Okay, I can work on Tuesday in the afternoon <laughs> and maybe Wednesday, but I can't work on, you know, and if it's raining on Thursday, there's no way I'm going to be able to show up for work. I mean, I'm exaggerating. You get the point. No wonder he didn't get a summer job. <laughs> But the point is, it's just like one hour and you're going to get paid. Now, they don't know it yet. That's number two, the point two, work day. Then number three, payday. All right, so everybody gets happy when it's time to get paid. I mean, I do. I thank God for my wages. Verse eight. Okay, let's see what God is like. Evening comes, the ship is over. He calls the workers and he pays their wages. But here we are. He begins with the last one hired then he goes to the first one hired. So the people who got hired at five get paid first before the people who got hired at six. I mean, there's nothing more to say than the first are the last and the last are the first. There's a little bit of a buildup here. So those who were last on the job were first to get paid. And you can see this if your Bible's open. Everyone, the 12-hour people, in between them and the one-hour people, they get the exact same wage. Now, this is unconventional to say the least, but this is the point. He makes them all equal. I mean, they say this. They, he makes them all equal by the wages that he paid them. He makes them all equal by the wages he paid them. That's grace. There's, there's a part of us that just can't stand that. Make them all equal by the wages he paid them? Equal like every child gets a participation medal in soccer? Equal? Yes. I mean, we love the ratings. We love the stats. I mean, the, who's first? Who's second? We love that stuff. That's cool, but that can't be interjected in the gospel at all. That is not grace. The gospel says, you don't become a Christian by keeping rules, so I'm not keeping tabs on how many rules you've kept over the whatever years of your life. No, you become a Christian by despairing of the fact that you cannot keep the rules. And then we're repenting to Jesus and saying, I don't keep rules. I don't keep rules. I'm sorry. Please help me. And it's a great work of God in the gospel to, you know, to confront you not only with your own mortality. Okay, you're going to die, then what? But to confront you with your immorality. Being, if you would, mercifully cornered with a full-blown sense of your sin. And then at that point, throwing yourself like a helpless child on Jesus and say, I am sorry. I need mercy. Please help me. Okay, so it's payday. Put yourself again in the shoes of the 6 a.m. worker. Just do it just for a minute. 12 hours in the heat of the day. Then put yourself in the shoes of the 9 a.m. worker. Then the noon, 3 p.m., the 5 p.m. worker. It's easy to see how people would say, that's not fair. A long time ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher, other side of the Atlantic, he preached 21 sermons on spiritual depression, its cause and its cure. Now, about two and a half years ago, I came across these sermons, and I needed to get some help, and he helped me. This is part of his quote from his sermon on Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, what we just read here. And this is what he said. Essentially, I'm going to read you the quote, but the essence of it is, don't track your success. Don't keep track of your works. 
Don't keep tabs on them. It's, it's, it's like, it's terrible for you. And this is what he says. Do not keep a record or an account of your works. Give up being bookkeepers. In the Christian life, we must desire nothing but God's glory, nothing but to please him. So do not keep your eye on the clock, but keep it on Christ and his work. Do not keep on recording your work and labor, but the, but the good of his kingdom. Keep your attention on that and on nothing else. Have no concern as to how many hours you've given to the work, nor how much you've done. In effect, leave the bookkeeping to him and to his grace. Let him keep the accounts. Listen to Christ. He says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, Matthew 6, 3. This is what you are to work. This is, this is the way you are to work in his kingdom. You are to work in such a way that your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing for this reason. Matthew 6, 4, your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is my favorite line. May I say it with reverence. There is nothing I know of that is so romantic as God's method of accounting. I mean, just where does he get this beautiful, but it's true. Be prepared for surprises in the kingdom. You never know what's going to happen. The last shall be first. What a complete reversal of our materialistic outlook. The last first, the first last, everything upside down. The whole world is turned upside down by grace. Thank God. It's not of man. It is of God. It is the kingdom of God. Rejoice that it is all of grace. What's the one thing the folks in the parable could not do who worked longer and harder? They couldn't rejoice that other people received what? Grace. A good wage. He goes on. And we should not only recognize that it's all of grace, but also rejoice in the fact that it is so. That was the tragedy of the laborers in the vineyard. They see a wage given to those who only work for one hour, and instead of rejoicing... Yay! At the sight of it, they begin to murmur and complain, to feel that it's unjust, and they're not being dealt with fairly. Last part, the secret of a happy Christian life is to realize that it is all of grace and to rejoice in that fact. So you also, says our Lord in another place, Luke 17, 10, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And you see, that's the beauty of this parable. The parable explains the grace of God in salvation. And it's just Jesus is the wealthy landowner. You got that. He's generous. He has plenty of money, which is a metaphor for grace. He has all the grace that you need. Just, just think of that. And just think of the fact that God lets us know that. A sinful people, he lets us know right off the bat. I have all the grace you need. Plenty of grace. Incalculable amounts infinite amounts of grace. Remember in Romans, the last chapter, of last verse, chapter 5, wherever sin abounds. I mean, who says that but God? Parents don't even say that, you know. <laughs> wherever sin abounds, grace much more or super abounds. Loved ones, our capacity to sin is outmatched by God's certainty in Christ of forgiving us of those sins. You know, that's unreasonable, but yeah, that's grace. Jesus is the landowner. The laborers are the people who God saves by his grace. Some people like me were saved by grace at a very, very early age. I am glad. I mean, I became a Christian when I was a kid. I was six years old. What did I do wrong? I lied to my parents. I kicked my sister. I probably spat on the sidewalk or something like that. And I couldn't stop doing that. That's what I told my pastor. I can't stop sinning. I'll never forget that. And then he told me about Jesus who suffered and died for those sins that I can't stop doing. 
And I don't think I'm great at being a Christian, but this is what I know. I love the local church. I love being a Christian. And I'm so thankful most of the time, because I can be dark too, but I'm so thankful most of the time that God is a gracious God. And some of you here, and you became Christian in your later years and all those years in between, all those different ages and stages. However, what is the point? We're all the same. The landowner makes it perfectly clear. We're all the same. The same grace of God in the gospel is the same grace that we receive. And in, in Christ, we all are the same. That is beautiful. And the only reason why we're all the same is because God is terrifically merciful. Even, you think, even at the last hour of a person's life, Right, so the, the vast majority of their life, they've ignored God, they, they haven't worshipped God, they might not have given a penny to God, you know, and they have let their bodies be the devil's playground. But at the very end, everything they receive is everything we'll receive. At the last hour, here it comes, here he comes. And he, you know, he does what, what every religion in the world cannot stand. He offers them a job, <laughs> salvation. They take it, he saves them. That's Christianity. That is what Christianity is like. Final point. So the first point, number one, parable. Okay, this is what God is like. You read this and reread this. You, you let it fashion your thinking. When you pray, when you think about other people, this is what God is like. Work day, right? All the different times. And people... Number three, get paid the same. One generous payment that is the same for all who come in Christ. Number four, decision day. So the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I was talking to a lady and I was explaining to her uh, how gracious God is and explaining grace in the gospel. She'd grown up in a, you know, a Christian home, but you know, she was being tormented by religion. And, you know, God bless her, all kinds of questions were coming. They were just, like, flying out. And at one point I said to her, confessional bad people who cry to Jesus for mercy, right, who say, God, I'm sorry, please help me, those are the ones who go to heaven, right? Confessional bad people who cry out to Jesus for mercy, who say, God, I'm sorry, please help me, those are the ones who go to heaven. And this is what she said, and this is exactly what she said. I can't tell you how comforting that is to hear. I hate how I feel when I do the wrong thing. It keeps me up all night. I can't tell you how comforting it is, right? How comforting that is to hear. Do do you remember those days way back when you were really aware of your sin? And you were really aware of God's grace and how comforting it was to know that you were forgiven. Remember John Stott? There is a righteous status that God requires if we're ever going to stand before him. And that status God himself achieves through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He reveals it in the gospel and he bestows it freely on all who trust in Jesus Christ. So, so the, the whole human race, the only, the only true claim that we can make is that we are sinners. We rebel. We do what we shouldn't. We don't do what we should. And, you know, we can, we can at various levels, you know, do more, do less, and, but trying harder is not going to be the, the cure. The parable makes it clear, the rich young, rich young ruler to that same end. 
But here's the answer. It's so simple. I'm going to read it right from the Bible. This is Romans 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, if you're aware of your sinner, uh, sins, why would anyone turn down that kind of relationship? You know, the thrill of having your sins forgiven, the thrill of having perpetual peace with God, knowing God as Father, Jesus as your elder, elder brother, knowing that your prayers are heard and your life is in his hand, the thrill of becoming like him, and the peace. I mean, people, they would give anything for peace. The peace that you have. You know, I know I say this, that you relate to God not through your personal performance, but through the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the wage that the landowner paid all the workers. Here, have this gift of perfect righteousness. I don't care when you came to the family, it's all yours. What thinking person would turn that down? Well, obviously there's some. Because the sad part of the parable, and it's the only sad part, is those people who couldn't rejoice at the generosity of the landowner. The complainers in the vineyard. And, I, you know, I wish I could tell you I've never been a complainer about God's grace, but I have. I could be just like them. Oh, man, as a pastor, let me tell you, I could be just like them. Do you know how hard I've worked? Do you know how long I've been at this? Do you know how long? Okay, what does this parable teach us? The first thing it teaches us is that Jesus is a big fan of the human race. And we should be too. He is a big fan of the human race. My God, he he gave his life for the human race. Second, the kingdom of God is driven by grace. That God is the God of all grace. So I I would almost say that anything in your thinking about Christianity, if there's not infusion of grace, you're off. You're you're way off. It's got to be grace-based. Third, it's not about what we think we deserve. It's about what God has done in Christ because we know ourselves undeserving. And that is the biggest hurdle. Knowing ourselves undeserving. But don't let it be. Fourth, and this is, you know, this might be crazy to you, but I was thinking about this for like an hour last night. There is no way with such a growing population on this earth that God in his wisdom and his goodness and his love did not earmark, all right? Because you have billions of people with a host of secondary uh, opinions about things on secondary issues, but not on the primary issue, right? What is primary? And I think in God's goodness... And in the Bible, it just focuses on the primary again and again to the point where it almost gets irritating to our flesh. But secondary issues do not save a person. The primary issues do. And what God wants you to hear Sunday by Sunday is not secondary issues, but what is primary. You have liberty in secondary issues. Enjoy them. But what is primary is primary. That's why you read through the Bible. It's a story about God's love in Jesus Christ. Fifth, do you know how humbling and joyful it is to receive from God what you do not deserve and you can never earn? I mean, if you know how humbling it is and how joyful it is, then you're a Christian. You're a Christian. 
And then the final thing, it's no-brainer, be happy. Be really, really happy when God is gracious to people who don't deserve it. So think of someone you just irritates you right now. They're all there, just somebody. Be really, really happy when God is gracious to people who do not deserve it. Can I give you one good reason why? Because you're looking at a person right now, if you're looking at me, who didn't deserve God's grace. All right, let's just end there. And let's just be amazed at this, this blast of grace from God in the story of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Father, show us all of the goodness of Jesus Christ. Show us how, if we're in Christ, all of his goodness has been given to us as a gift. And it covers us forever, though we struggle daily with indwelling sin. And teach us to rest, not in our works, but in your grace and in your mercy. And teach us again and again not only to be happy for other people who have received this grace, but to thank you publicly and privately for what you have done, not only to ourselves, but to those around us. This has been a really good holiday, I believe, for most of us, and we want to thank you for that. And we just anticipate and would ask you, God, in a very humble way that as this Christmas season begins specifically here in our community and and life here at the chapel, that you would bless it enormously. Give us what we don't deserve, So as we meet together week by week in all the different ways, not only here but outside this place, the generosity and the kindness of you, the living God, will be enjoyed and embraced and shared with other people. And we'll tell them the wonders of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.